0: The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. Well, on this week's edition of the No Restraint Podcast, I, your humble reporter and commentator, Joyce Kaufman, want to talk about a couple of different things. One of them is a fabulous article I read in Tablet Magazine about a guide to understanding the hoax of the century. And another would be about the coronation of King Charles. It took me a minute to even remember what his name was because he is the most undistinguished king to come along in a long time. But regardless, I'm going to address that and his son, Harry, the prince who barely made it to the coronation and then wasn't particularly welcomed. Anyway, I want to talk about the information war. And it has a lot to do with different ways that we could look at disinformation. In 1950, Senator Joseph McCarthy claimed that he had proof of a communist spy ring that was operating inside the government. Overnight, the explosive accusations blew up in the national press, but the details kept changing. Initially, McCarthy said he had a list with the names of 205 communists in the State Department. The next day, he revised it to 57. Since he kept the list a secret, the inconsistencies were beside the point. The point was the power of the accusation, which made McCarthy's name synonymous with the politics of that era. For more than half a century, McCarthyism stood as a defining chapter in the worldview of American liberals, a warning about the dangerous allure of blacklists and witch hunts and demagogues. Until 2017, that is, when another list of alleged Russian agents roiled the American press and political class. A new outfit called Hamilton 68 claimed to have discovered hundreds of Russian-affiliated accounts that had infiltrated Twitter to sow chaos and helped Donald Trump win the election. Russia stood accused of hacking social media platforms, the news centers of power, and using them to covertly direct events inside the U.S. None of it was true. After reviewing Hamilton 68's secret list, Twitter's safety officer Joel Roth privately admitted that his company was allowing real people to be unilaterally labeled Russian stooges without evidence or recourse. The Hamilton 68 episode played out as a nearly shot for shot remake of the McCarthy affair with one important difference. McCarthy faced some resistance from leading journalists as well as from the US intelligence agencies and his fellow members of Congress. In our time, those same groups lined up to support the new secret lists and attack anyone who questioned them. When proof emerged earlier this year that Hamilton 68 was a high-level hoax perpetrated against the American people, it was met with a great wall of silence in the national press. The disinterest was so profound it suggested a matter of principle rather than convenience for the standard bearers of American liberalism who had lost faith in the promise of freedom and embraced a new ideal. In his last days in office, President Barack Obama made the decision to set the country on a new course. On December 23rd of 2016, he signed into law the Countering Foreign Propaganda and Disinformation Act which used the language of defending the homeland to launch an open-ended, offensive information war. Something in the looming specter of Donald Trump and the populist movements of 2016 reawakened sleeping monsters in the West. Disinformation, a half-forgotten relic of the Cold War, was newly spoken of as an urgent existential threat Russia was said to have exploited the vulnerabilities of the open internet to bypass U.S. strategic defenses by infiltrating private citizens' phones and laptops. The Kremlin's endgame was to colonize the minds of its targets, a tactic cyber warfare specialist called cognitive hacking. Defeating this specter was treated as a matter of national survival, quote, The U.S. is losing at influence warfare, end quote, warned a December 2016 article in the defense industry journal Defense One. The article quoted two government insiders arguing that laws written to protect U.S. citizens from state spying were jeopardizing national security. According to Rand Waltzman, a former program manager at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, America's adversaries enjoyed a significant advantage as the result of legal and organizational constraints that we are subject to and they are not. The point was echoed by Michael Lumpkin, who headed the State Department's Global Engagement Center. The agency Obama designated to run the U.S. counter disinformation campaign. Lumpkin singled out the Privacy Act of 1974 a post-Watergate law protecting U.S. citizens from having their data collected by the government as antiquated. The 1974 act was created to make sure that we aren't collecting data on U.S. citizens. Well, by definition, the World Wide Web is worldwide. There is no passport that goes with it. If it's a Tunisian citizen in the United States or a U.S. citizen in Tunisia, I don't have the ability to discern that. If I had more ability to work with that personally identifiable information and had access, I could do more targeting more definitively to make sure I could hit the right message to the right audience at the right time. Gee, thanks, Mr. Lumpkin. The message from the U.S. defense establishment was clear. To win the information war, an existential conflict taking place in the borderless dimensions of cyberspace, the government needed to dispense with outdated legal distinctions between foreign terrorists and American citizens. Since 2016, the federal government has spent billions of dollars on turning the counter disinformation complex into one of the most powerful forces in the modern world, a sprawling leviathan with tentacles reaching into both the public and private sector, which the government uses to direct a whole-of-society effort that aims to seize total control over the Internet and achieve nothing less than the eradication of human error. Step one in the national mobilization to defeat disinformation fused the U.S. national security infrastructure with the social media platforms where the war was being fought. The government's lead counter disinformation agency, the GEC, declared that its mission entailed seeking out and engaging the best talent within the technology sector. To that end, the government started deputizing tech executives as de facto wartime information commissars at companies like Facebook and Twitter, Google and Amazon, the upper management levels had always included veterans of the national security establishment, but with the new alliance between US national security and social media, the former spooks and intelligence agency officials grew into a dominant block inside those companies. But with the new alliance between the US national security and social media, The former spooks and intelligence agency officials grew into a dominant block inside those companies. What had been a career ladder by which people stepped up from their government experience to reach private tech sector jobs turned into an outer boroughs that molded the two together. With the D.C.-Silicon Valley fusion, the federal bureaucracies could rely on informal social connections To push their agenda inside the tech companies. In the fall of 2017, the FBI opened its Foreign Influence Task Force for the express purpose of monitoring social media to flag accounts trying to discredit U.S. individuals and institutions. The Department of Homeland Security took on a similar role. At around the same time, Hamilton 68 blew up. Publicly, Twitter's algorithms turned the Russian influence-exposing dashboard into a major news story. Behind the scenes, Twitter executives quickly figured out that it was a scam. When Twitter reverse-engineered the secret list, it found, according to the journalist Matt Taibbi, that instead of tracking how Russia influenced American attitudes, Hamilton 68 simply collected a handful of mostly real, mostly American accounts, and described their organic conversations as Russian scheming. The discovery prompted Twitter's head of trust and safety, Yoel Roth, to suggest in an October 2017 email that the company take action to expose the hoax and call them out on the BS it is. In the end, neither Roth nor anyone else said a word. Instead, they let a purveyor of industrial-grade BS, the old-fashioned term for disinformation, continue dumping its contents directly into the news stream. It was not enough for a few powerful agencies to combat disinformation. The strategy of national mobilization called for not only the whole-of-government, but also whole-of-society approach, according to a document released by the GEC in 2018. To counter propaganda and disinformation, the agency stated, will require leveraging expertise from across government, tech and marketing sectors, academia, and NGOs. This is how the government created war against disinformation became the great moral crusade of its time. CIA officers at Langley came to share a cause with hip young journalists in Brooklyn, progressive nonprofits in D.C., George Soros-funded think tanks in Prague, racial equity consultants, private equity consultants, tech company staffers in Silicon Valley, Ivy League researchers, and failed British royals. Never-Trump Republicans joined forces with the DNC which declared online disinformation a whole-of-society problem that requires a whole-of-society response. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Even trenchant critics of the phenomenon, including Taibbi and the Columbia Journalism Review's Jeff Gerth, who recently published a dissection of the press's role in promoting false Trump-Russia collusion claims, have focused on the media's failures, a framing largely shared by conservative publications, which treat disinformation as an issue of partisan censorship bias. But while there's no question that the media has utterly disgraced itself, it's also a convenient fall guy, by far the weakest player in the counter-disinformation complex. The American press, once the guardian of democracy, was hollowed out to the point that it could be worn like a hand puppet by the U.S. security agencies and party operatives. It would be nice to call what has taken place a tragedy, but an audience is meant to learn something from a tragedy. As a nation, America not only has learned nothing, it has been deliberately prevented from learning anything while being made to chase after shadows. This is not because Americans are stupid. It's because what has taken place is not a tragedy, but something closer to a crime. Disinformation is both the name of the crime and the means of covering it up a weapon that doubles as a disguise. The crime is the information war itself, which was launched under false pretenses and by its nature destroys the essential boundaries between the public and private and between the foreign and domestic on which peace and democracy depend. By conflating the anti-establishment policies of domestic populists with acts of war by foreign enemies, it justified turning weapons of war against American citizens. It turned the public arenas where social and political life take place into surveillance traps and targets for mass psychological operations. The crime is the routine violation of Americans' rights by unelected officials who secretly control what individuals can think and say. What we are seeing now is, in the revelations exposing the inner workings of the state corporate censorship regime is only the end of the beginning. The United States is still in the earliest stages of a mass mobilization that aims to harness every sector of society under a singular technocratic rule. The mobilization, which began as a response to the supposedly urgent menace of Russian interference, now evolves into a regime of total information control that has arrogated to itself the mission of eradicating abstract dangers such as error, injustice, and harm, a goal worthy only of leaders who believe themselves to be infallible or comic book supervillains. The first phase of the information war was marked. By distinctively human displays of incompetence and brute force intimidation. But the next stage, already underway, is being carried out through both scalable processes of artificial intelligence and algorithmic pre censorship that are invisibly encoded into the infrastructure of the Internet, where they can alter the perceptions of billions of people. Something monstrous is taking shape in America. Formally, it exhibits the synergy of state and corporate power in service to a tribal zeal that is the hallmark of fascism. Yet anyone who spends time in America and is not a brainwashed zealot can tell that this is not a fascistic country. What is coming into being is a new form of government and social organization that is as different from mid-20th century liberal democracy as the early American Republic was from the British monarchism that it grew out of and eventually supplanted. A state organized on the principle that it exists to protect the sovereign rights of individuals is being replaced by a digital leviathan that wheels power through opaque algorithms and the manipulation of digital swarms. It resembles the Chinese system of social credit and one-party state control, and yet that too misses the distinctively American and providential character of the control system. In the time we lose trying to name it, the thing itself may disappear back into the bureaucratic shadows, covering up any trace of it with automated deletions from the top secret data centers of Amazon Web Services, the trusted cloud for government. When the blackbird flew out of sight, it marked the edge of one of many circles. In a technical or structural sense, the censorship regime's aim is not to censor or to oppress, but to rule. That's why the authorities can never be labeled as guilty of disinformation, not when they lied about Hunter Biden's laptops, not when they claimed that the lab leak was a racist conspiracy. Not when they said that vaccines stopped transmission of the novel coronavirus. Disinformation now and for all time is whatever they say it is. That is not a sign that the concept is being misused or corrupted. It is the precise functioning of a totalitarian system. If the underlying philosophy of the war against disinformation can be expressed in a single claim, it is this, you cannot be trusted with your own mind. What follows is an attempt to see how this philosophy has manifested in reality. It approaches the subject of disinformation from 13 angles, like the 13 ways of a blackbird, of looking at a blackbird, Wallace Stevens' 1917 poem with the aim that the composite of those partial views will provide a useful impression of disinformation's true shape and ultimate design. Hat tip, Jacob Siegel. By the way, the coronation was an amazing spectacle, although a little bit bizarre. Many of us watched it on our television sets, and it was interesting to see Britain crown King Charles Third in London's Westminster Abbey. Millions of people around the world were watching it, and it was full of magnificence and ceremony. The British have no rivals in that. Even in the dress rehearsal the week before, which was carried out in the middle of the night, there were crowds of spectators and all kinds of Awestruck responses to the mile-long military procession taking the gold state coach to the Abbey from Buckingham Palace. The significance of the event goes far deeper and wider than all the pomp and circumstance, because the coronation makes two statements of great importance for today's world about the place of religion in public life and the importance and meaning of the nation, both religion and nation are currently opposed, scorned, and vilified by the dominant progressive elites of Western culture. Many such people also oppose the monarchy. Throughout the West, there is now an all-out assault on the very idea of the nation along with its inherited culture. This is fueled by a determination to impose supposedly universal values that will usher in the unity of all mankind. This onslaught involves an attempt to dismember the traditional nuclear family, vilify white society, normative sexuality in men, and hijack education, and replace knowledge and rationality with propaganda and the suppression of dissent. At the core of this agenda, whose echoes can also be heard in the anti-government protests that have been rocking Israel, lies the aim of exiling religion from the public square. The monarchy in Britain embodies both religion and nation. The core of the coronation is a religious dedication. Dressed in a simple shirt, the king is anointed with holy oil and in this private ritual will take his monarchical oath of service to God. Few realize that the British monarchy is patterned on Jewish history. Early English kings even believed they were descended from King David. They appreciated the revolutionary aspect of ancient Israel. Its monarch was not the supreme ruler, a status which invites tyranny and despotism, but was himself answerable to God, the one true king over all. The British coronation rite is modeled on the accession of King Solomon as described in the Book of Kings. Solomon was escorted to the throne by both religious and military leaders, as was Charles, and was anointed by the high priest, represented by the Archbishop of Canterbury. The choir in the Abbey will raise the roof with Handel's sublime Zadok the priest, and the holy oil will have been brought from Jordan, part of the original land of Israel. Jews know better than anyone that what keeps a nation together is continuity, the adherence to principles and traditions and rights that shape a people and are handed down through the generations. Britain, however, is a very different nation from the one that greeted the late Queen Elizabeth II when she was crowned more than 70 years ago. Demographically, it is far more diverse with a plethora of different cultures and faiths. This will be acknowledged at the coronation as it was. Britain's chief rabbi and the equivalent representatives of the Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, and Buddhist communities will step towards the king as they did at the end of the ceremony and extend to him their good wishes and blessings. To ensure the chief rabbi does not break Shabbat, he and his wife will spend the night before the coronation at St. James Palace, so they can walk to the abbey, and his words will not be amplified by a microphone. In addition, a Muslim, a Sikh, and a Hundu will present the king with artifacts that play a part in the ceremony, the imperial mantle, the sovereign's ring, a pair of ceremonial bracelets, and the coronation glove. There is relief among traditionalists that while these gestures are a sensitive nod towards diversity, the core principle underpinning the coronation has not been eroded. This is what the monarch swears to defend the Protestant Christian faith. Although when he was Prince of Wales, Charles stated his wish to be a defender of faith, he will in fact retain the all-important definite article and swear to be defender of the faith. An increasing number of people can't see the point of this in a society where religious belief is now a minority pursuit. However, Christianity remains key to the nation's integrity and sense of itself. Christian values are fundamental to the West. Justice and the rule of law, compassion, putting others first, above all, respect for every individual's humanity as created in the image of God, all come from the Hebrew Bible and the Christianity that cemented them into Western culture. The idea that minority cultures can only thrive without that umbrella structure is mistaken. In its absence, groups will fight other groups for power and the weakest will go to the wall. America, which has neither a monarchy nor an established religion, nevertheless, subscribes to those values. Biblical precepts and the example of ancient Israel are explicitly referenced through America's foundational institutions. Only a nation whose citizens are united by a common culture within a delineated territory can defend those values in that territory and thus protect civilization itself. That's why the onslaught on the Western nation and its core religious inheritance is so very troubling. The king is an intelligent and sensitive man who is devoted to his people and did very many good things as Prince of Wales. However, unease remains that he may not properly promote and defend these values that are now under siege. The monarch must never be associated with anything that divides the public. Throughout the reign of the late queen, the public never knew what she thought about anything. By contrast, the king's long record as a passionate supporter of causes such as environmental issues threatens to undermine the monarch's role as the embodiment of the nation. And while the king has already become much more popular than might once have been imagined, there are concerns that he may not hold the line in the culture wars. Hat tip, Melanie Phillips. Don't forget to listen to next week's podcast, and I hope you enjoyed this one. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.